Turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we will be this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 17 through 19. This is our second week in a discussion of of money and right use of it. Um, This passage in particular, like we talked about last week, is, is really for all of us. If we read verse 17 in in the way that Paul intended it to come across to his disciple Timothy, if we read verse 17 in such a way that we would consider that we are the ones who are rich in this present age, not because maybe our bank account has a large number, but because we have the tendency to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So this text is for for all of us this morning, uh, verse 17, 18, and 19 in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to to be this morning. Every time we take time to talk about money, uh, the Lord inserts our family into into financial trial. Uh, That's just the reality of it. I don't know why. I think it's probably because the rubber needs to hit the road for, for us. Last week I told you I was having some problems with our teeth, and 24 hours after I was preaching in front of you, I was in, in, in Fargo having an emergency root canal, um, which, I mean, you know, that's not fun. It's, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great time. Uh, emergency root canals also are, are sort of expensive, and after it was said and done, I said to Rebecca, I said, uh, you, you know why I had to have that procedure done, and she said, yeah, because you're preaching on money. And, and <laughs> friends, trusting Jesus is dangerous business. It really is. It, it honestly is. It, it creates hazards in our lives that, that honestly I don't think would come to us until our hearts are prepared to enter into uh, serious, deep, and abiding belief, trust, faith that Jesus is all that we need. When we begin to move down that course, when we move to begin to move down that path, oftentimes we find ourselves in these positions where the things of this world just simply aren't sufficient for us. We were singing about this morning, and as I was thinking, <laughs> as I was thinking, while well, the dentist was drilling in my head, and it was rattling in, at an incredible frequency, all I could think of was Romans eight twenty eight, right? Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. And I handed over my credit card to pay for for the procedure. And I knew it was not good to set my hopes on the uncertainty of riches, like Paul says to Timothy in verse 17. And the rubber hit the road. The rubber hit the road in, in that moment. And so as pastor, I'm praying that the rubber hits the road for you too. And you're saying, please don't pray that. And I'm saying, I'm going to pray it. The reality is we have to have these tangible things come about in our lives in order to to recognize the truth of God's word. That, that this isn't, these aren't just words on a page. They're not just simply things and pithy platitudes that come before us on a Sunday morning and just run through our brain in one, in, in one ear and out the other. But the reality is that these things, when our hearts begin to be inclined to trust Jesus, that these things will become a reality for us. The, the, the reality is how, how are we going to, to respond. So last week we just thought about verse 17, and verse 17 reads this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So we just thought about that verse last week, and we drew several conclusions. And I should have put these on a slide, and I didn't do that, I'm sorry. But I'm going to give you four of them. 
We're going to actually kind of unpack a little bit the fourth because it flows into verses 18 and 19. So last week we thought about verse 17. These are the four conclusions that we drew-ish. First, we must set our hopes on God if we are to enjoy the material and temporary gifts he has given to us. We must set our hopes on God if we are to enjoy the material and temporary gifts he has given to us. No one enjoys the gifts that God gives to him and her if we are leveling unrealistic expectations on those things. Material is temporary. Material will go away. If you're leveling expectations on your house or on your car or on your phone or whatever it is that you level your expectations on, you will be vastly disappointed and you will find yourself not enjoying those things. However, those things were given to you by God to enjoy, but the only way that you'll go about doing that is if you set your hope on God and not the uncertainty of the temporary or the uncertainty of the material. The second thing that I would say is this, to set our hopes on money is foolishness because money is subject to change, but God is not. Again, similar principle here. Money is always changing. It's, it's subject to market fluctuations. It's subject to inflation. It's subject to all of these different things, and it is constantly changing. The, um, the times that your money in your wallet this morning will change in value are, I don't know how many times, but it probably will be. Actually, it's the weekend, so it probably not. But the reality is that once you get to, within 24 hours, the value of the money in your wallet right now will change. It will change. But God does not change. The third thing is this, from verse 17. To set our hopes on money will set brothers and sisters in Christ against one another. But to set our hopes in God will result in love for neighbor. Remember we talked about that when we looked at verses uh, 3 through 10 in chapter 6. And when we saw these false teachers coming into the church in Ephesus and Paul instructing Timothy according to these, these false teachers. And he's telling them, hey, these guys are preaching gospel that is not correct. They're preaching a false gospel. If anyone does not agree with the doctrines or teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. The rubric for the false teachers that Paul gives to Timothy regarding these false teachers in Ephesus is that their message would, if applied, set brother against brother, sister against sister, Christ follower against Christ follower. And so... If we, as people, hear the message that God wants us to be rich or God wants uh, our best life now, oftentimes those ideas set brother against brother, sister against sister, Christ follower against Christ follower. Because we find ourselves walking on other people to find our best life now, to get rich quick. But God says, no, the way that we think about our money is vastly important. The way that we think about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If then the, 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 the message that you hear from someone in Christian subculture, if that sets you against a brother or sister in Christ, then you can be sure that that is coming from a place of a false teacher. Fourth and finally, and we're going to pack this one a little bit more. Fourth and finally last week from verse 17. Properly placed hope in God will bring about flourishing faith that earnestly believes God will fulfill all his promises to his people. Let me say that again. Properly placed hope in God will bring about a flourishing faith 
that earnestly believes God will fulfill all his promises to his people. Inversely, improperly placed home, hope in money will kill belief and cause doubt in the hearts of God's people. And before we dive into verses 18 and 19, I want to restate this last idea we talked about and simply say this. Simply say this. If you're struggling to believe that Christ is enough, and I mean really enough, like if you're struggling to believe that Christ is enough, and if you feel like you have to have the ability to perform, to get right before God, I know that that's true for many of you in this room this morning. If you feel like you earn God's favor, if you feel like God couldn't possibly save you of all people because you don't know the things that I've done, God knows. If you're getting run over by a particular sin this morning, if you're getting run over by a particular sin, maybe it's lust, maybe it's greed, maybe it's anger, maybe it's unforgiveness. If you're being run over by a particular sin this morning, friends, Christ is enough. If your mind cares nothing for the things of God after you exit this building on Sunday mornings, and as you go throughout your week, if you're struggling to believe that Christ is enough, friends, let me submit this to you. It's because your hope is improperly placed. And I don't know where it is this morning. It may be on money. It may be on something else. But I ask you to consider this morning, is your hope properly placed? Like Paul says in verse 17, not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches or the uncertainty of anything in this present age, but on God who doesn't change, who is eternal. Friends, if that's you, consider that which you think would fix your problems. If you're wondering, well, what does it mean? How, do I, how can I consider what it means to, to hope in something other than God? Just ask yourself the question, what do I think right now would fix my problems? Is it a little bit more uh, cash flow? Or is it God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ? Or something else altogether? If it's something else, I would encourage you this week, Please pray. I'm praying for you. The reality is we need to begin to think about placing our hope properly in God and Him alone. He alone can correct our problems. He alone can restore our relationship with Him. He alone can restore our relationship with others. He alone can light our path. He can only, only He can call you son or daughter. He, only He can deal with your sin. Only He can deliver you from bondage. Friends, he, only He can satisfy your every longing. And that we would know that God who can do all things and abundantly more is not a prefabricated God who acts more like a vending machine than the God of the universe. This is not a God who is biting His fingernails hoping that we get it correct. This is a God who is sovereign over all things. Who is in control of everything. And who can be the soul satisfying thing that you need throughout the course of your week. He is a God who gave his only begotten son that you might become his child. And that the fullest realization of this world would come where we fix our hopes. Not in the temporary, but in the eternal. Thereby seeing the temporary as a wonderful gift for us to enjoy. Not to live an entitled life, not to boost our own social standing. 
but see the things that we have in this life as a wonderful gift to allow us to enjoy God even more. God gave you that food and drink to enjoy. God gave you that vehicle to enjoy. God gave you that house to enjoy. But you will never enjoy them if you don't first realize that they can't deliver you satisfaction and only God can fully satisfy. He gives us gifts in the temporary so that we might enjoy Him. So that we would not demand more, but see Him as enough. We show His goodness as God who is generously giving despite the fact that we deserve nothing. And we go and we eat our food and we say, oh, this steak is delicious. We say, I'm grateful to God for us. It will satisfy me and sustain me over the next several hours, but God will satisfy and sustain me for all of eternity. I'm grateful to God for my house. It provides me shelter from the elements and peace from the stresses of life, but God provides me with shelter from his wrath when Jesus absorbed it on my behalf, an eternal peace with God is possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. Could it be that your dwelling place, the four walls where you find yourself at the end of your day and resting your head on your pillow is a picture of God's goodness to you in Christ Jesus, saying you are sheltered from the wrath of God just like you're sheltered from the freezing cold and the snow and I long for you to know these things, to enjoy God, not to demand more of this world, but to gratefully, with gratitude, glorify God for the simple tastes of eternity in the temporary. And this is only possible, again, if we set our hopes on God, like Paul says to Timothy in verse 17. So properly placed hope in God will bring about a flourishing faith that God will fulfill all his promises to his people and improperly placed hope in money or in the temporary will kill belief and cause doubt in the hearts of God's people. That understanding is fundamental then to the next two verses. Verses 18 and 19. Let me read these for us. I'll read 17 again. And 18 and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So two things then to consider in verses 18 and 19 this morning. Two things here. First is simply this, generosity and good works display true riches. Generosity and good works display true riches. And then secondly, secondly, money has temporary worth, but eternal importance. Money has temporary worth, but eternal importance. So we'll take those in turn. The first one then, generosity and good works display true riches. So again, Look at what Paul writes here in verse 17, not setting our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And then to do good, right? In verse 18, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share. So he gives those four things there, right? And they're, they're all kind of related. And oftentimes when we see lists like this, it's for emphasis. Now they each have their own little understanding, but 
Paul says these four things because he really wants to drive across to Timothy that this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like for believers in Christ to use their money, use their resources properly. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. Those four things. So he gives these four things, and we've seen lists like this before, again, for emphasis. But what Paul's communicating to Timothy here is very important. Just in that first part of verse 18, or verse 18 in its entirety, what he's communicating to him is this, that the outworking of hope in God, so if we set our hopes on God, the outworking of hope in God enables the believer to do good and good works and to be generous and have the ability to share. The outworking of hope in God enables the believer to do good and good works and to be generous and to have the ability to share. So stingy, miserly people are not hoping in God. They're probably hoping in their money, at least something in the temporary. So Paul says that we are to do good and to be rich in good works. The first is an action, right? He says to do good. Look at it. Verse 18. They are to do good. And then the second is an identity, to be rich in good works, to be rich in good, good works. What Paul is saying is that for those who hope in God, those ones are rich in good works and therefore do good works. They are rich in good works and, and do good works. It's a simple argument, right? If you have a lot of money, you buy things. That's what you do. You use those resources. You use those resources. You buy things, you invest, etc. What Paul is saying is that those who are rich, not in money, but in good works, they, they use it. They, they do good works. Now when Paul talks about good, doing good and good works, what does he mean? I think he clarifies this actually in a letter he writes to the church in Ephesus, which would probably be in their minds if Timothy were communicating something similar to the church in Ephesus. They have this letter from Paul, and Paul is saying something very similar here. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works are the thing that God created us to do. God created us to do good works. Before sin entered the world, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, the things that he commanded them to do are the good works. Those are the things that we would designate as the good works. But good works, they were designed to do these in the garden, but they failed and subsequently we failed. And we were corrupted by sin. But in Christ we know Paul writes it to the Corinthian church. We are new creations. We are new creations. So Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are essentially recreated to do that which we were created to do. Good works. To live in step with what God has commanded us to do in his word. So God prepared these, and then we were to walk in them. So if we want to boil that down, what did God create us to do? So two things. He created us to glorify him, and he created us to enjoy him. 
Right again, so the temporary gifts of this world are meant to point us to, uh, the, to God, to the giver. The gifts are meant to point us to the giver. And by being pointed to the giver and acknowledging him in all that we have and say and do, we are bringing him glory. How do we do that? Again, living according to that which he commands. We are able to do that now as new creatures. As those who are corrupted by sin, pre-Christ, we are unable to please God through the things that we do. But now that we are in Christ, if we've trusted Jesus, we are now able to, it is possible for us to adhere to that which he set before us in the pages of Scripture. So before Christ, we can modify our behavior to look like we're rich in good works. But in Christ, we are capable of following the commands God gives us and actually be rich in good works. What does God require of us? We have God's word, again, that communicates to us. Love God. Love neighbor. Make disciples. Show the world uh, that's in darkness, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. There are tons of imperatives, tons of commands given in Scripture. We see these over and over. We must go to God's word to find out what they are. And you say, so you say, we, we look at this text and we say, okay, so, so these things God commands of us. And we say, why do I have to do good works and be rich in good works? Aren't we, aren't we under grace, right? And you're like, that sounds like legalism if you're saying I have to do something. Friends, a lot of Christians fall into this trap and then they ignore their Bible, ignore the imperatives that are contained there, and they, they live their life uh, according to what they think is best. But don't fall into this trap. Legalism is thinking adherence to the law saves you. That's not what we're saying at all. That's not what Paul is saying at all. In fact, when Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, when he says that we're created for good works, that we might walk in them, that's being informed by what comes immediately before it in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2, when he says... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by good works. Rather, rather we are saved and recreated so that we, we might walk in the things that God intends. Those are the good works. God didn't save you and put you on a shelf. Say, I'm done with him or her. Now we'll move on to the next person. He saved you for a purpose. If you're in Christ, that purpose is that you might glorify God by enjoying him. Displaying good works by adhering to what God commands you to. Do in the power of the spirit who now dwells inside of you. He doesn't just leave us to do this on our own either. Jesus says very clearly, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you one who is going to empower, uh, create in you the desire to do all that I, I command. So Paul tells Timothy that the rich of this present age, when it comes to wealth, they need to be displaying good works that God prepared beforehand, both in their identity, not just in the way that they act, but also in who they are. Not to think first, I'm wealthy, or to think about their bank account is what defines them or their socioeconomic class, but to think, I am God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. Because Christ was rich in good works, I am rich in good works. And I will operate out of my greatest strengths, and my greatest strengths is that I am a child of, of God. 
Not that I'm rich in this present age. But then Paul goes on to command generosity and preparedness to share, right? The second half of verse 18. To be rich in good works, to be generous and, and ready, ready to share. And this, this idea simply flows out of who God is. This is the most, I think the most important reason why we are called to be generous is because God is a generous God. We are created in his image. We are called to be image bearers. Romans 8.32 is the place where this is abundantly clear. God is a generous God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now that doesn't mean in a material sense. But what Paul is saying in this verse is that God will give us all things related to salvation. Nothing will be left out. It will all come from him. God will not forget a critical part of our ability to deal with, with, or to dwell with him in right relationship. God will not forget a critical part of the necessary steps that will put us back in right relationship with God. He will give us all things. And Paul argues that since God sacrificed his son, we don't need to be concerned that we don't have all that is necessary for our salvation. He has provided it all. God has freely given it all to us. Imagine this morning you have a $500 million debt. And you're sitting here this morning and it's due in the next 10 minutes. First of all, you probably wouldn't be here. You'd probably be running. But, but if you were here, the hypothetical just broke down. But if you were here and you had a $500 million debt and Bill Gates walked through the door and said, I'll take care of that, don't worry about it. You'd probably consider that pretty generous. You'd probably consider that. And he, he didn't walk through the door and say, hey, I wrote a check for $499 million, but you got to figure out that last $1 million by yourself. He says, it's all taken care of. Again, we'd probably consider that pretty generous. That's the picture of God freely giving us all things. We don't have to make up any differences. God has generously handled them all without exception. And if you're in Christ, your debts have been paid. You have need of nothing else to spend eternity with God in perfect relationship with your creator. You have, if you are in Christ this morning, you have need of nothing else that you need to spend eternity in perfect relationship with God, your creator. And this type of generosity is what we are commanded to live into. Freely giving with no thought of return. Generosity is displayed in us when we give without any thought of return. We should be generous with others. That means we should give and not look for payback in some sort of way. Friends, how many times have you thought to yourself when you helped out a friend, I wonder if I'm going to get this back. Maybe not monetarily, but in some type of support. Emotional support, physical support, you name it. And we should be generous with the local church, and that means that we should give and not see as, as a transaction. It's different than going to the grocery store. Generosity is different than going to the grocery store. It's different than going to the grocery store and p- picking out some mustard off the, the shelf and going and purchasing that mustard. The reason you want the mustard is because it makes your hot dogs taste better. But the reality is that's just transactional understanding. We don't have a transactional understanding of generosity. Generosity gives with no intent 
or no desire or no thought of return. But when we are generous with others, with the local church, our thoughts should be not, what do I get? But our thoughts should be, how am I displaying who God is? And then Paul says in verse 18, the last thing he says is to be ready to share. This is the same word. Share in this instance is the same word that is often translated fellowship or sometimes translated partnership. We see this word a lot in the New Testament. It oftentimes has financial connotations to it. Ready to partner together with others despite socioeconomic class. Ready to use financial resources to serve and love others in partnering together for the gospel. The takeaway from the, this phrase is this. If we are to be a church that seeks to love, if we are to be a church that seeks to serve, we must invest not only our time and our energy, but also our financial resources as well. You must think that your money is a way to serve the local church, to love the local church, and not just as a means to get what you want. And so ultimately in verse 18, Paul wants to redefine then what it means to be rich. And that moves us to our second point. He wants to redefine what it means to be rich. And there's a very simple concept that came up last week. He wants the Ephesian believers under the care of Timothy to understand that their money has temporary worth, but the use of money has internal importance. And so the second point. Money has temporary worth, but eternal importance. By doing and being these things, we are storing up treasures for yourself. This is what Paul says. Paul says that by doing good and being rich in good works, being generous and being prepared to share, by doing and being these things, we are storing up treasure for ourselves. It's crazy how we get this wrong. This is so plain. It's so simple. And yet we get this wrong over and over and over and over again. We store up money. But that's the wrong Treasure. And Paul says that the right treasure, there is a good foundation for the future. The future that stands right around the corner of this present age. It's the age to come. How can I prepare for the age to come? We prepare for retirement. How do we prepare for the age to come? Paul tells us. Use what you have in this present age with the future in mind. It's not just the next five to ten years. But it's when you go to the grave or when Jesus returns. If you focus on this life, on this present age, your future will be uncertain. That's what Paul says. He says, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. If your focus is on your money and retirement account, your foundation will fall apart. If you focus on God and his word and the mission that he's given to the local church and use your money to be a tool in the pursuit of those things, then your foundation will be solid. This is what Paul is saying. And that good foundation is essential so that the future of the grave, beyond the grave is certain. Right use of money is not guaranteeing your future. Don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say that. Right use of money is not, or is not guaranteeing your future, but it's proving what your future is. Right use of money is not guaranteeing your future, but it's proving what your future is. Friends, if we are in Christ, 
He is our treasure. He is our treasure. We must make him our ultimate treasure. Not just a couple of us, friends, but the Buffalo City Church family, we must do this together. We must make Jesus our treasure together. Our money has temporary worth, and again, it's a good thing. It's a good gift that God has given to us, but it exists to point us to that which has eternal worth, Christ Jesus himself. He's our King of kings and our Lord of lords. He's the lamb that was slain. He is worthy. Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The, 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 the host of beings who are singing this in Revelation 5 are ascribing to Christ Jesus' worth. They're saying there is nothing. There is nothing that is worth as much as Christ Jesus. They are treasuring Christ through what they what they proclaim. And if you're saying, I have no idea how to treasure Jesus, that sounds weird, here's how. Just simply consider the gospel. Consider the sacrifice that he made. Sinless, spotless lamb of God, slain for your biggest need, to be free from sin that leads to death. That, friends, is our biggest need. But we had an infinite debt that was keeping us from that thing. And there is literally nothing that could, that could rectify or reconcile that debt except for the shed blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus had paid for the infinite debt of sin that we owe. That blood was shed and had the ability to change the course of our future. Friends, it had the ability to change the course of your future. We're not talking about some ethereal blah, 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 mumbo-jumbo religious stuff. We're talking about the actual shed physical blood of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when he was nailed to the cross and when his side was pierced and blood and water flowed out of it. That blood that was shed had the ability to change the course of our future like nothing else. No matter how much money we make, no matter how many good things that we do, no matter how nice we are, no matter how many mission trips you go on, no matter how many churches you plant, no matter how many people you see to come, come to Christ, none of that could begin to deal with the debt of sin that you owed. And the wrath of God is coming in Jesus. The rock of ages was cleft for you. His side was pierced and water and blood flowed from it and operated as a double cure, cure, saving you from wrath and making you pure so that you could stand before a holy God and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have clothed yourself in Christ. And Jesus then is our destiny. And just like God put Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 33, before his glory passed over him, Jesus' side was split, and the blood of the Passover lamb might be placed on the door so that the firstborn among the Israelites might live. Jesus' blood was placed over us so that the wrath of God might be turned away because the shedding of blood has granted us, friends, and has granted us the forgiveness of sins. The real physical act of the shedding of Jesus' blood has given us forgiveness of sins. How do I treasure Christ? Stop pretending like money is the rock of ages that was cleft for you. Stop pretending that you can nestle yourself in that bank account. 
Stop pretending like you can walk out of this place and that a sum of money will make you safe. You say, well, I don't do that. Again, just ask yourself, where does my heart go hard after? What are the things that consume the majority of my thoughts throughout the course of the week? Is it the precious blood of Jesus shed on your behalf? What are the things that I think will fix my problems? We treasure that which provides us with safety and security. And the rock of ages cleft for us. May we fix ourselves firmly in him and Jesus Christ and not the rickety shacks of the, that the world offers. When the storm comes and death calls our name, the rickety shacks will quickly collapse, but the rock of ages will provide the necessary shelter. Trust in Christ. Treasure him, not money. I'm just going to give you one takeaway this morning as we're thinking about this text. There to do good works, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Just one takeaway this morning. Consider this. Be generous. Don't simply act generously. And you say, well, what's the difference? Right? Be generous. Don't simply act. There is a, a difference here. As those who seek to reflect Christ to a broken world, we must understand that we are not called to only do, but to do as a result of our being. This is why that text in Ephesians 2 is so important. We are created for good works, that we might walk in them. We are created for that. We're not simply just commanded to do it, or say, go do it and figure out how. You are actually recreated to do that very thing which God has set before you. And as those who seek to reflect Christ to our broken world, we're not called to only do, but to do as a result of our being. Jesus was, Jesus was a generous, generous God, offering his life so that we might live. Friends, we are called to do the same, nothing short of our life in service to our King. This is what it means to be generous. And here's one key difference between just acting generously and being generous. I could give you a handful, but this one is important. Consistency. Consistency. Are we consistently living in to generosity? Those who are generous as an identity, they are consistently generous. They're always on red alert. How can I give out of that which has been given to me? And oftentimes we think to ourselves, we need to get to a place of excess so then we can be generous, right? I have all that I need, and now I can be generous. When in fact, that's not the way that the Bible talks about generosity at all. Out of our excess is not, is not generous. It's taking what you have and understanding, I don't quite know how it's going to come together in the next few weeks, and still being willing to give. It's our life. Recognize that money is a tool, a good gift from God to enjoy him more, and usually the way to enjoy God more with money is to hold it loosely and to be willing to part with it regularly. And those who are generous don't think of their giving, again, that idea that we talked about earlier, they don't think of their giving as transactional, right? They give with no expectation of return. Could we be a church that gives generously with no expectation of, war, of return? 
We're so desperately for us to grow through the ministry of Buffalo City Church. Friends, oftentimes in my mind, I forget our youth. As a congregation, we're three years old. We're three years old. If you haven't been with us for a while, we're only three years old. God has blessed us with people who are living generous lives in, in our midst. But the reality is we continue to grow, and as we continue to deepen our faith, as we continue to, to recognize who we are, we must stave off this understanding or this thought process that our giving is transactional. We must stave off these ideas. And because we're young, right, we don't have all of the robust things that churches that are older have. That's okay. We're growing into it. We're figuring it out. Would you figure it out with us? Would you put, would you, would you put some roots down here this morning? If you're here and you're kind of floating in and out, would you put some roots down here? And would you say, this is the place in which I'm going to invest because it gives me an opportunity to be generous. When we start putting numbers on things and whatever it all, we start to squirm. So I don't want to even talk about that. But we want to be, we want to offer more equipping opportunities. We want to see our current ministries flourishing. Members, we'll be giving some legs to the vision elements for 2019 soon. And we want to be generous, not just as individuals, but as a church also. As a church, we want to support gospel ministry in our region, in our city, in our state, in our globally. We want to see those things happen. We want to see them flourish. We want to support them well. We want to be generous as a local church. We want to see church planting happening in our, in our, in our region, and we want to see it happening globally. We want to give sacrificially of what we have as a local church to those efforts. In just a few weeks, we're going to have a, a, a young man here who's planning to plant a church in Castleton. He's going to come here. He's going to preach. Um, when I say a few weeks, it's like six weeks. But but, uh, but he's going to be here, and he's going to cast this vision for us and see, uh, see what, uh, what God is doing in our region and how, he's, how he is moving towards planting churches. That, that's an effort and a work that's incredibly important. Friends, we planted, this church was planted. God is building this church here in this place. This is not a result of my efforts or Mark's efforts or anyone else's efforts. It's, it's because God wanted this to happen, to take shape. And it has, and it's growing, but that, that type of work is, is not happening a lot in our region, in rural communities, or in smaller communities like Castleton. And so we want to see those things take place, but we want to be a church that is generous so that we can see those things take place, so that we can support the work of ministry and see the gospel go out and impact lives uh, in, 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 in our region. We say that the church is, is God's plan A. I don't know, maybe I don't say that that often. It says, I say it in my head a lot. But the church is God's plan A. Gospel ministry is meant to flow through the local church. Don't get me wrong, parachurch organizations are wonderful. They're great. But the God's plan A, right? Jesus said it very clearly. He said, I will build my church. When he said, who, who do the people say that I am? When he says that to his disciples, and Jesus said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood did not reveal to this to you. He said, I'm going to build my church, Jesus tells him. He tells their disciples, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, this morning, if you're in this place, you're here for, for a purpose. God's plan A is the local church. Gospel ministry is meant to flow 
through the local church. We want to be effective ministers of, of the gospel. And so some questions that I have, just some practical elements for us that I'm constantly asking myself is, is our giving, is our generosity, is it commensurate with the church of our side? I guess we're young. We're learning what it means to be generous. We're learning what it means to grow. There's a lot of young families here. Our financial resources aren't flowing freely. But are we not giving out of our excess? But are we giving sacrificially with all of our lives, our time and our resources and our money? And is, is our giving commensurate with our size? And honestly, I have to say, we have some room to grow here. We have some room to grow here. Our budget from 2017 to 2018 grew 15 to 17% somewhere. We're getting close to meeting that. But the reality is that our size, our Sunday morning attendance, has grown somewhere between 40 and 50% over the last year. And so those numbers don't necessarily jive, and, and we want to give you space to, to learn, and usually giving lags. That's the way that it happens in churches. Those details, who cares? But, but the reality is we want to see our giving grow, and we want to use those things for, for gospel for gospel ministry. And I, I was actually convicted this week. I was thinking, beginning to process through 2019 and the budget and talking to some people about it. And I thought to myself, I don't, I don't know. Initially, I, I was thinking, okay, like, what's an increase? What was last year? What can we... And I was thinking about, like, oftentimes churches talk about faith budgets, right? Like, well, what, are, what are we believing? But the reality is our faith-based budget is something that, that is obviously significantly bigger than, than what we're looking at on paper. Because we want to be people, again, last week we said it, our use of money, our use of financial resources is, a, is about our faith. And it's about what we believe. Do we believe that, that God is, is the place where we set our hopes? Or do we set our hopes on the uncertainty of, of riches? And if it's the former, then, then we'll be quick to give. We'll, be, we'll long to give. And we've said this often before, too. Money, money is a discipleship issue. All of our life is a discipleship issue, really. But the way that we use our money reflects how much we're prepared to step into a life that is lived sacrificially. Is our life, uh, is our li- are our lives an act of spiritual worship, like Paul says in Romans 12? Are our lives an act of, and, and we, don't, we don't get to guard areas of our lives, whether it be financial, whether it be our time, whether it be resources. We're called to live into those things. We're called to use those, those things because, not because of what we do. It's what we do. It's just what we do. That's what the church does. But it's because we're who we are. It's because who, it's who God has made us. That's who God has made us to be. So that takeaway this morning, be generous. Don't just act generously. And again, that difference, right? We seek to rec- reflect Christ. We seek to reflect Christ to a broken world that's hurting, that's underwater, that's being drowned in their own sin. And we must understand that we're not calling only to do, but to be. Friends, Jesus, again, he was generous. Again, he offered his life so that we, we might live. We want to take everything that we have and use it in service to our King. Let me pray.